Would you turn to Colossians? We're going through Colossians verse by verse. Would you turn to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28? And what a passage this is to end our stay in this building and move uh, to another venue. Um, so we, we start reading verse 28. And the word of God says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. These three words, we proclaim him. This is the grand purpose of the church. The proclamation of Jesus Christ is the active agent, if you like, of our salvation. The very substance, the essence of all mysteries and all hope. It is, if you like, the wind that blows the sail of the gospel. Carrying this message of freedom, true freedom and hope, spreading it to the four corners of the earth. So here we come to the very DNA of life, the very heartbeat of the gospel. We proclaim him. This is it. This is the key that unlocks the most stubborn heart. The song of our redemption. The decoder of all divine mysteries. May I point your attention to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 verses 7 and 8 where it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The psalm says. Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. This is him whom we proclaim. The one who shuts and no one opens. And the one who opens and no one shuts. This is he who makes the good news good. The one who makes the glorious mystery so glorious. This is the one who makes heaven, heaven. Paul says, we proclaim him. Is there any one that would be better to proclaim than him? Who him? Who? Well, in verse 27, Paul says, Christ in you. He is the hope of glory. In other words, he is the promised eternal celebration, the very assurance of our eternal rewards, the coming blessings guaranteed in him. We proclaim him. Now, how did Paul arrive to this? Just a a way of review and taking a bird's eye view on the previous passages just before. 
Again, from verse 15 to verse 17, Paul spoke of Christ's preeminence over creation. Then he moves on from verses 18 to verse 23, Christ's preeminence over the church. He narrows it down. And in verse 24, Christ's preeminence over his sufferings. And finally, and what we spoke about last time, Verses 26 and 27 is Christ's preeminence in where? In you, Gentile believers. In you. And we said last time, every believer can boldly say with a joyful heart, Christ is in me. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, Christ is in me. Now, why? Why is it so joyful thing to know that Christ is in me? Again, we're just reviewing what we spoke about last time. One, because it means that we possess Christ. Every blood-bought saint of God can sing, Come rejoice now, O my soul, for His love is my reward. Fear is gone, hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Number two, because it means Christ possesses you. He's ruling in your heart, reigning in your temple, internally transforming your life, renovating your priorities, reordering your life. Number three, Christ in you, it means that you and I can consciously, fully aware, experience the joy that we can get from Christ. In other words, we can taste his comfort. We can swim in his grace, rest in his peace, being fulfilled in his companionship, led through his guidance. And as we plunge deeper in what it means that Christ is in you, as our minds expand and our hearts enlarge and really comprehend what it actually means that Christ is in us, we find that this hidden truth in our heart, our mouth speaks. It's like a a dynamite. You can't contain it. It just wants to explode out of you. And so Paul says in verse 28, we proclaim him. We come to the first point, the proclamation. Three points to be exact. We're going to talk about proclamation, admonishing, and teaching. The proclamation. Now pay closer attention to what Paul says. He says, we proclaim him. Please note the personal pronoun, we. So far, Paul has been taken through um, many lovely passages and he's embedded the personal pronoun, I. He would say in verse 23, I, Paul, was made a minister. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. 25, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God. But here, what does he do? 
says we. He's inviting you and I and everyone in whose heart Christ is burning white hot. And he says, we, all of us, all the saints that have Christ in them. And he says, Christ is bursting out of the chest, through the lips, proclaim him. And may I just add here, that word proclaim is not just, uh, is, it's not um, uh, um, the, the common word where you preach aloud, you know, like heralding, like John the Baptist did or the apostles did. No, proclaim here is just speak of him. Make him known. Tell of him. So, please note another thing. Who is it that we proclaim? It is, by the way, who? It's not a what. It is not that we proclaim rules and regulations. No. Not policies and procedures. And it's as though Paul is saying, let those false teachers proclaim systems, techniques, concepts. Let others, even today, proclaim motivational speeches or Moral conformity. How to be a better you. Here are five steps to overcome loneliness. Or seven steps to feel better. This is what you do to become the Mother Teresa. Get that Mother Teresa out of you and manifest it in you. No, none of these things. Let dry Christians proclaim Christless Dry theology or philosophy of man. But we, we saints of God, we have to rejoice when Christ is proclaimed. Furthermore, let's take it even deeper than that. Because literally, in the Greek, if you look at the order of the words, what we find is that Paul front loads the sentence with the personal pronoun him. It actually ought to be read, Him we proclaim, as though to emphasize that the entire spotlight is on Christ, not even in our proclamation of Him. Nothing else but Christ. Now what does it mean, Him we proclaim? It means that our primary focus in our lives is Jesus Christ Himself. That we're not satisfied unless he is the central theme in whether teaching, preaching, Bible studies, discipleship, fellowship, conversations, day-to-day fellowship. It's as though that it's like a, a solar system and all the planets orbiting around the sun. So everything we say ought to revolve around Jesus Christ. I've been around some Christians, and I'm sure you did as well, who love to proclaim themselves. Their main theme of their conversations is the cuteness of their children. Or others proclaim their own cleverness, their genius, their success, their status, their positions. They love to be on the stage of the main theme of their conversations. But what does Paul say? 
Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, We determine to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We rejoice only when Christ is magnified, not Him and our intelligence. Not Him and our personal achievements or our good works. Rather, let our good works and our silver and gold turn into ashes. Nothing else but Christ alone to shine like the, noon, the morning sun. And we're not apologetics about that. We're not apologetic. We, as a church, exist. And we are committed to proclaim Christ alone. Why is that? Why is it important to know this and to be committed this way? Do you know that from the very beginning of time, the Old Testament proclaimed Christ? Starting from the first promise in Genesis 3.15, when God spoke to the serpent, that is Satan, and he gave that very first promise. Let me read it to you. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This was a messianic prophecy, and it set the course and drove the entire redemptive history from the beginning to the end. Think of all the covenants that are given to us. One of them is the fact that Christ is our federal head fulfilling the Adamic covenant. All the promises of Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled in him as we speak. The Davidic kingdom, his covenant, the dynasty of, of David will be fulfilled in Christ. It is because of him that the Mosaic Covenant, with all of its rituals and all, all its ceremonies and laws, have been abolished because of him. And the new covenant has been inaugurated through him and him alone. In other words, all covenants find their fulfillment in him. The Old Testament has one singular theme that is the king of all things, and that is Christ. And even as this chapter, the Old Testament, closes and there's 400 years of silence where heaven sh was shut and not a word came out of God through the prophets. And then a new chapter opened and rolled and, and the curtains of new revelation of the New Testament rolled up. What do we see? We see the Gospels. And what's their theme? Again, Christ. Christ's birth, his life, his death, resurrection, ascension, and it's been proclaimed through the Gospels. And then we come to the book of Acts. Salvation in Jesus' name alone has taken the whole world by a storm. And then in the epistles, we find in them Jesus' life lived out in us. And even in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, what do we see? We open it up and we find 
Who is it that is worthy to um, open up the scroll? The one who would get the job done of cleansing the world from evil. It is him that we proclaim. He will get the job done. We proclaim him. That's why we're not apologetic. There is no salvation given under heaven among men apart from him. No future blessings. No kingdom, no promises except through him. Christ has, is, and will always be central. He is pivotal. He is honored in all of the scripture. The book of Acts chapter 10 verse 43 says, Of him all the prophets bear witness. John 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So what is the point of all of this? The point is this. We cannot be more aligned to the central theme of God's word than when Him we proclaim. All other apologetics, clever talks, man's wisdom that Christians employ in order to lead unbelievers to be saved is like fighting hell with a water pistol. They will all avail to nothing. Unless the main goal is Christ. How do we take this in? How do we apply this in our lives? Let our parental guidance, whether we're catechizing our children, whether we're disciplining them, whether you're teaching them science, English, morality, or whenever you lead unbelievers to be saved, let everything that we say point to this one bright morning star, Jesus Christ. Because even the very power of the gospel that saves lies at the feet of Christ, the whole of Christ, and nothing else but Christ. This is why we proclaim Him. Ah, but I'm a Christian and... And my whole family are Christians and I only talk to Christians. Most of, what do I do? I mean, I guess I just need to talk about stuff that are more than Christ. Brothers, when you're feeling depressed and you have sleepless nights, What better thing can you do to bring comfort to your soul than to remind yourself of who Christ is to you? When you're worn out and you're feeling guilty and there's that sense of shame, who else do you remind yourself that satisfied God's wrath, bore your guilt, took your shame away by Christ? When you're under pressure, And you're tempted to compromise. From whose hands will you remind yourself that you will receive eternal rewards? But Christ and Christ alone. Every theology, every doctrine 
everything that we teach and preach, all of our fellowship, unless they are caused or pointing to Jesus Christ, we reject Him. We ignore them. Even our hermeneutics. All of our theology have to always point to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be glorified, to be proclaimed. <clears throat> so we proclaim Christ. To whom? Only unbelievers? Read the text. Admonishing every man. Teaching every man. Who do we proclaim Christ to? Every man. Now, how do we do this? How? What do we do? What are the means to proclaim Christ to every man? Please note, there are two means through which we proclaim Christ. What are they? Admonishing and teaching. One is negative and the other is positive. The first is practical, the second is theological. And we'll take him one at a time. So we'll come now to the second point, admonishing. Admonishing. Admonishing who? Every man. Now what does this word mean? We hardly use it. I can't recall last time someone said to me, I want to admonish someone. What does it mean to admonish? Basically, it means to correct someone. It, it, it's a general word, and it just, it's a compound word, and it basically means you place something in somebody's mind. You bring something to someone's mind. Mainly in the scripture, it speaks of correcting or rebuking or sometimes even warning someone of some consequences because of some potential foolish conduct. Uh, let me give you an example. We'll go, a few, we'll go through some examples. Paul, in his final farewell, when he was among the elders uh, of the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, let me read to you what he says. What he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Three years did not cease, with tears, admonish each one. In order to protect the church of Ephesus, Paul was admonishing each one, warning each one. Watch out, brothers. These false teaching that will strip Christ from His glory and destroy the church. Well, Paul does that, I guess, because he's a leader of the church. He's an apostle, and perhaps it's the elder's role to admonish people. But I'm just a, a lay person. I'm just a brother in Christ. 
Brothers, I want to tell you that this is not just a responsibility of the church leaders. Every believer that cares about the honor of Jesus Christ is to correct, rebuke, and warn others when occasions arise. Where do I get that from? Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, not elders, nor mature Christians, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Uh, this is in an imperative mode. In other words, if we don't do it, we are sinning. Right? Brothers, I want to take this opportunity and admonish you to admonish. Put it this way. The church that does not admonish one another and have come complacent about this, that is to say, the church that doesn't lovingly correct unbiblical thoughts or when necessary, gently rebuking sinful behavior or warning against false teaching. If we don't do that, we are no longer ought to be considered as a church. We are no more than a social club. We can think of ourselves that we are the cream uh, of the crop uh, as much as we like, but if there is no admonition, there is no Christ proclamation. And if there is no Christ proclamation, we are a Christless church, dead in the water kind of church. Uh, but, I'm, but I'm not a confrontational person by nature. You know, and my, my, my brothers will think of me that I'm arrogant if I uh, admonish them. They'll think I'm, that I'm judgmental. No, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to speak nice words to them and I'll leave this to somebody else to do. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Yes, we ought to encourage one another. But our loving obligation to encourage in no way does it mean that we do not admonish one another. Proverbs 28, 23, it says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. In other words, although we may be worrying about what others think of us when we bring some correction to them, but the Bible assures us that in the end, we'll, we will find more favor in our loving rebuke towards one another than if we kiss People with words that are not true. Or sweep their sins under a carpet. Now, what does admonishing have anything to do with the proclamation of Jesus Christ? Everything. How come? 
If you read the New Testament, have you noticed something so remarkable about Paul's letters? How he seems to consistently connect his admonishing with his teaching, the person or the work of Jesus Christ. He would say, brothers, do this, do that. And then he would teach Jesus either as a root cause of the motive, why you should do it, or the example of how you should do it, or the ultimate purpose as to why you should do it. Almost every single time. So he's admonishing every man. He's also teaching every man with all wisdom. In other words, he wisely connects the right deeds with the right doctrine. I'm going to give you again some examples so you understand what I mean. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13. He would say, forgive each other. Well, it's a command. We've got to forgive each other. Fair enough. We understand that. Now, what, what does it mean to forgive? What does it look like to forgive? What kind of example can we follow in order to forgive? He would say, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, he would admonish you by saying, walk in love. All right, walk in love. What does it look like to walk in love? Just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching and admonishing. Philippians chapter 2, where he would say, be humble. Don't be selfish. Be humble. And in verse 5, he would say, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, let our admonition be rooted in Christ. Take out Christ from your admonition, from your correction or rebuke, and you know what's going to happen? You will turn this admonition into some form of legalism. Bitter law, heavy burden for people to embrace and to follow. But when you let Christ be the cause, when you teach people that Christ is the example and the purpose of admonishing people, you will turn your confrontation to a warm invitation of worship. We can put it in another way. Again, by asking a question. How do we admonish people? How do we admonish every man? Answer, by teaching every man. The teaching, that's the third point. So proclamation, admonishing, and now teaching. What do we teach every man? Ultimately, we proclaim Christ. Yes, we teach men everything, but ultimately... We proclaim Christ. We teach Christ. The whole of Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome, brothers, if we apply Christ in every challenging situation? That we would beautify our rebukes. 
that we would clarify our correction. How? By bringing Christ in all circumstances of life. So what do we teach about Christ? What do we teach? Well, for the remainder of this message, I want to show you some things about Christ. I want to take this opportunity and exalt Christ. And who knows, maybe I would, I would really encourage you to take on these five areas of Christ that I want to share with you. Of course, there is infinitely more. But take him in with you. When you fellowship, talk about them. Discuss them over dinner, over, you know, when you're hospitable and invite people over to your house. We teach his divinity. We teach his divinity. We teach Christ as a son of God. Existing fully in divine nature throughout all eternity. In other words, Christ possesses all of God's attributes. Nothing in the Father that the Father possesses that he does not share with the Son. Two distinct persons, but one God. So what does this mean? It means that Christ is self-existent, self-sufficient. He is the eternal, infinite, immutable, almighty God who exists everywhere and knows all things. We teach the divinity of the Son. We also teach that Christ is infinitely majestic. Since He is God, He is infinitely majestic. Psalm 45 verse 3, it says, Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and your majesty. Christ is so majestic that the scripture says that He rides the highest of heaven. Isaiah saw Him in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, um, that He was high and lifted up, exalted, seated on His throne. That Jesus' glory that fills the earth. Before Him, the earth trembles, the mountain melts like wax. All creation will witness His supreme authority. It is Christ who sits above the circle of the earth. And to Him, all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He rebukes the sea and He causes it to dry. His eyes are like flame of fire and the wicked will face everlasting fire in His presence and in the glory of His power. Scripture tells us that heaven serves Christ as, the, as His throne and the earth is His footstool. That He's exalted, the eternal one, the one who dwells in eternity and His kingdom has no end. This Son of God is so majestic that the scripture tells us that he is the blessed one, only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. So we teach Jesus infinite majesty. And yet, we also teach Jesus infinite humility. Infinite humility. Because he's not just God, he is man. Do you know something? By the way, keep this in your mind. We never ascribe humility to God. We need to understand this. Yes, God hates pride. He is not proud, but yet he is exalted. He's the exalted one. He is worthy to be glorified. No one else is worthy to be glorified but God alone. 
And so, we do not say that God is humble. Yet, when Jesus took on flesh and became a man, he displayed the lowest level of humility. No one ever has ever been as humble as Christ is. How could it be the one who owns all of creation, so rich, so vast, to be born of a poor woman in a poor manger in a poor town, Bethlehem, and to live poor, nowhere to lay down his head, to suffer thirst and hunger, to sleep in a boat, And then when he came to die, he died naked, poor. How could it be the one who is worthy of infinite love from the Father and from angels, worthy of infinite esteem and honor from all men, such that when we honor him, and even if we employ all of our faculties and all of our strength, we are not honoring him enough. And even when he came down on earth, demons worshipped him. And yet he is so humble that he was treated as if he was the most wicked person on earth. He was arrested and bound as if he was a lawbreaker. And his accusers, they portrayed him as the most wicked of all men. And before his crucifixion, he suffered as if he were the worst, the vilest among all men, as if he committed the darkest kind of crimes. And he was subjected to a form of death that was typically reserved for the most despicable criminals, the cross. And if that was not enough, he suffered as though he was guilty before God the Father. Bearing all of our guilt as though it was his own. And even when he was sinless, he took on our sin. And in so doing, he bore the full weight of God's wrath for us. He was cursed for us. Because he's infinitely humble. His life was marked by serving others. Serving as a slave. Serving to the point of death. And never once did Jesus ever demand or sought his own interest. Always thought of God and man. Humble. Number four. We teach Christ's infinite compassion. Not just... Humble, but infinitely compassionate. The leper that came and saw him, we studied that in the Gospel of Mark. Leper, he was an outcast, a stigma. He's marginalized, hated, abhorred by um, his society. When he came to Christ and he fell on his face and was pleading in Luke 5.12 and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus, you can put an end to my shame. 
If you are willing, what does Jesus do? Without hesitation, Jesus does the unthinkable. He stretches out his hand. He reaches and he touches the untouchables. And he would say to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Holding a child in his arm, Jesus declared, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Even little children he would pay attention to. He tenderly call, calls the children in Mark 10 verse 14 and he says, Let them come to me. Do not hinder them. The little children that are meant to be not seen nor heard. Just go somewhere and play in, in your backyard or something. Jesus pays attention to them. I bruise read he would not break. The mourners who were grieving over the death of a young girl. Jesus would go to them and he wants to comfort them. He would say, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but he's asleep. He's comforting them. Then with this tender voice, he gently would take that young girl's hand and he would say, little girl, I say to you, get up. He's so gentle, so compassionate, so sweet. He is so exhausted from all the teaching that he's done and all the preaching that he's done. And yet till night of the day, he would perform miracles. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And all those miracles are to serve these people that are flocking to him. If he only wanted to prove that he's son of God and he just wanted to make a statement that he is God, he could have just written something on the sky. He would have been able to turn the sky from blue to, I don't know, red or whatever. But he ensured that every miracle, every word that comes out of his mouth, every time he moves and he touches someone, it is to heal. It's to bind their wounds. Infinitely compassionate. But for sinners like us are left best for last. Because not only is he infinitely compassionate, but he's infinitely gracious. Infinitely gracious. And I'm going to show you is what I call the holy ladder of grace. You'll know what I mean. It's got a few steps. The holy ladder of grace. Christ gives grace to sinners. That's the first step. But not only to the well-respected sinners, but even to the most despised, to the rejected, to the beggars, to the monsters of iniquity, to thugs, terrorists, murderers, liars, ruthless. If you don't believe me, read the word of God and see what kind of people that came to Christ for salvation. His grace stretches and reaches to the greatest kind of sinners. But not only does he show sinners mercy by not giving them what they deserve, which is hell. No, he goes further and beyond that. Because his grace is that fact, the fact that he's showering them with good things that they don't deserve. And not just any good thing, all good things. And not just all good things, but the best things. Even himself graciously gives himself to live within them. 
And he doesn't just grant all good things to them when it only convenience him. No, he's so gracious that he would have, he would accept to suffer in order to be gracious to them. And if that is not enough, he goes beyond that because not only does he suffer, but he suffers to the point of death. And not any kind of death, one more step further, and the most shameful and the most tormenting death ever known to man. He's not gracious enough. There is more because not only to suffer in the hands of mere men, but he also is willing to go beyond that and to suffer in the hands of an infinitely holy God. And when God poured out, he didn't pour out just a little bit of punishment, but his infinite wrath for infinite punishment upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not pick and choose what kind of sins he will take out of us to represent us before the Father. He took all of our sins that offended a holy God and he suffered for them all. Why? In order to display how infinitely gracious he is. And not only that, more steps. Because when he did that, and when he wanted to apply this grace of salvation, he didn't establish the means to be our blood, sweat, and tears. No, 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 no. He, he basically made it that it, you just simply believe. You just believe. How gracious is he? Just believe. Not only that. But he rejoices when he dispenses that kind of grace. He doesn't do it reluctantly. No. He delights to give it away. He's over the moon when he pardons sinners. When he gives them all good things freely. And not only that, but his delight over the fact that he applies grace is far more than the delight of angels and even those sinners when they come to him. He delights more in accepting sinners than even sinners are delighted in being accepted by him. That's how gracious he is. This is him we proclaim. The divinity of Christ, the, majest, the majesty of Christ, the humility of Christ, the compassion and the graciousness of Christ, our Savior. We proclaim Him. And I want to invite you to join the Apostle Paul and to teach of Christ. To speak of Christ. To make sure that Christ is the be-all and the end-all. Make sure. Categorizing your kids. Teaching your kids. Let Christ be the king of all your teachings and all of your fellowship. 
you will not regret it. And for unbelievers among us, let us reason together again. What would be in your mind that would stop you from coming to Christ? Such a gracious Savior. Such a compassionate Savior. Why would you deprive yourself from not only good things, but all good things? Not only all good things, but the best thing, and that is Jesus Christ to come in you, to dwell within you. What do you have to offer? That you would say, I will choose this over and above Jesus Christ. Even your own very sins that condemn you. Even your own conscience that will bear witness against you. Jesus says he offers you such grace that he would wash away the guilt. That he will pardon all of your sins. Why not that you would come to this such an awesome Savior today, even now as we are speaking of Him, to come to Him with all of your sins and cast all of them at His feet and say, Christ, forgive me. Christ, cleanse me. Christ, accept me. He said, he who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. Why? He is divine. He is majestic. In other words, he is able to accept everyone that will come to him. Not only that, but he is compassionate and he is gracious. In other words, he longs to accept. He desires. He loves to accept everyone that comes to him. He is able and willing. Come, friend, to Christ, the fountain of living waters. Amen. Let's bow our heads and worship. Lord, there's nothing else that is better to proclaim than your son, Jesus. There is no other medicine available to soothe our wounds and bruises that sin has caused in us by Christ Jesus. There is no other surgeon that is able to operate in our hearts, to change us, to give us power in order to overcome our betrayals and our rejections. By Christ Jesus. Lord, we come before you today and we ask you. Give us eyes to see Christ in everything. Give us a heart that wants to cling to him. No matter what. May his name be magnified in our lives and in this local church. In Jesus' name, amen.